You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. Welcome back to Mining Stock Education. I am your host, Bill Powers, chatting today with Matt Geiger, Resource Fund Manager over at MJGCapital.com. Matt, thanks for coming back on the show. It's uh, very volatile and interesting times financially, as well as geopolitically. Obviously, the last two years have been tough, tough as junior resource speculators, but there's also a lot of uncertainty in the general markets. So with all that in mind, what are the key economic or commodity data that you're looking at to see which way the markets might be moving? Sure, Bill, and appreciate you having me back on the, the program here. It's good to be good to be joining you on MSE. Um, so I would say, looking specifically at the, the commodity markets, um, I really think in long-term time horizons. So there's really only a couple metrics that I'm looking at, and this is not stuff that is going to influence my market view over the next 6, 12, or 18 months. Um, but what does get me excited for this decade uh, in terms of us that are invested in this space and are, are planning to do so for a number of years here. Um, the first is a metric that we've, we've discussed before. Uh, it's actually a handful of metrics. And you're basically looking at commodity prices relative to the general stock market, or you're looking at uh, commodity producers relative to the general stock market, or you're looking specifically at miners relative to the general stock market. There's a whole host of metrics. And depending on the specific metric you look at, we remain at 30, 50, 70, 100 year lows, um, really across across the board. So that gives me tremendous faith. I'm a strong believer in reversion to the mean. Um, these things take time. They, they don't go in a straight, a straight line. But as long as I see that commodity prices, commodity equities, mining equities specifically are cheap, and in fact, very cheap relative to their historic valuations, that gives me good confidence that we're that we're in the we're in the right space. The other metric that I gets gets me excited when I layer this over the the, the historically cheap valuations is industry wide capex expenditures. And even though commodity prices, um, especially with this inflation narrative, you know the prices of commodities are finally back on the the radar of of, of your average everyday Joe that's out there. Even with this run-up we've seen over the past two years, we have not seen a commensurate rise. Actually, nowhere close to a rise in actual capital expenditures. The, the major miners still remain very skittish and very selective with where they're, where they're um, deploying capital. So if you go back and look historically, we're closer to 2016 levels of capital expenditures, at least for uh, full year 2022, than we were at the tops of previous cycles, You know, looking back to 2011, 2012, or looking back to 2007 uh, time period. So again, I, I will likely change my late, um, my opinion later this decade um, when I'm looking at these same charts and commodities look expensive relative to the stock market, and then we start seeing capital actually being put into the ground at the same scales that we did towards previous market tops. But we're nowhere close to that. So for the time being, it's it's full steam ahead from from my perspective. And when you invest in a junior, you've shared with me in the past, you're bottom up, you look at the fundamentals of the individual company. And then can you discuss your time frame? What's your time horizon for uh, an investment in a junior miner? Yeah, that's that's right, Bill. So I, I do factor in the, the commodity of focus, but really that's at the very end of the, the investment process. So I try my very best to 
to put out my biases. Of course, you know, I am more favorable to some metals or some commodities over others, but I, I try to put that out of mind and focus on the people, the asset quality, assuming spot metal prices, the company's financial structure, upcoming catalyst, price to value, all that good stuff before I then consider, okay, do we need more or less exposure of this metal uh, in our overall portfolio, given our, our portfolio construction? Um, now, now, to your question about the time frame, it really comes down to the specific investment. Like we have a few different investment styles that we'll employ within the fund. Um, probably the shortest time frame would be what I describe as post-discovery uh, speculations. And so these are the the kind of names where you and we don't do this a huge amount. Um, some funds specialize specifically in the strategy. We'll do this every so often. Probably the best example of it succeeding within the MJG partnership was buying Adriatic um, within a few weeks of its initial discovery hole. But in the, in these types of plays. We could hold the position for as few, as as short as a few weeks. Um, really, you're just waiting for that next news release to see if what got you excited from that original uh, discovery hole is continuing. And ideally, the intercept that that got you uh, interested in the story to begin with is getting wider and higher grade, or at least there's some continuity that you're seeing. So if, if you don't like what you see with these post-discovery specs, you should be willing to sell almost immediately um, if, if the next news release does not deliver to your expectations. So that'd be the absolute shortest time horizon. Um, then we can look at the development stage plays. And that's kind of more of a medium six to 18 month time horizon, I, I would classify as. Um, really, in these cases, you're waiting for that next unanswered question to be answered. And it, it could be a number of things. It could be a key permit uh, to, to get the mine built or to show that the mine is progressing towards uh, being shovel ready. Uh, it could be you know the first economic study, uh, which you're hoping will catch the market by surprise. Um, it could be another round of uh, drill results um, if it's an earlier stage development play. So you want to set a specific unanswered question, wait for that to be answered. If you like the answer, and you, and then you, if you like the answer, then that's a good sign. <laughs> Ideally, you've, you've seen some appreciation um, in your position over that time period. Then you need to look out to the next unanswered question and get a sense of what you think the expected value is, uh, aka what are the odds of them answering this next unanswered question positively? And if they do, what types of returns could I expect? If the if the risk reward remains favorable in your view, then you can wait another six to eighteen months, and the process repeats. So that's how I think about it for development stage plays, um, and then for prospect generators and royalty names in particular, stuff. It's a little bit more of a buy and hold scenario. So there's some names in the portfolio where I envision them staying within the fund as long as MJG Capital uh, is around. And you know, later this decade, when I think we're towards the top of the market, I won't hesitate to shut it down and send money back to investors. But there's probably four or five holdings where, assuming management keeps plugging along and doing what they, they say, this is going to be they're going to be long-term holds. So those are positions that I'll, I'll monitor for reasons to sell. Uh, and it could be, you know, bad behavior from management or poor mistakes uh, that kind of come out of kind of come out of the blue. I don't expect that with these types of buy and hold holdings, but you have to keep an open mind. Um, or it could be the valuation of said company getting super far out of out of whack. But absent those two variables, you know, those positions I, I provide a much longer leash, so to speak. You mentioned Adriatic Metals. Are you holding that through the development phase? Yeah. So, so Adriatic remains a remains a position of ours. Um, one thing that I'm very much looking for in this market environment is companies being able to go 
well into 20, late 2023, really into 2024 without raising additional capital. Uh, I think that's ex- extremely important. Um, my base assumption is that markets are going to be rocky for another 12, 15, 18 months. And I'm bracing for the worst and uh, holding a bigger cash position as as a result than, than we would. Um, hopefully, I'm being overly pessimistic and things turn, and that will be totally fine from an MJG perspective. Um, but that said, you do not want to be in a position where you're... Uh, ideally, you don't want to be in a position where you're you're raising... Um, in, in these distressed circumstances. And it, it could get worse before it gets better. Um, so all, all that being said, Adriatic, I like the story because as it stands, they're in a position where they do not need to issue issue equity here. Now, there, there are some risks. They're in the midst of a mine build in a highly inflationary environment. Uh, building this in, in Bosnia, mind you, while there's a, there's a war. So there's certain, there's, there's definite execution risks. That said, they have enough capital um, to execute to plan. And if management does what they, they say they will, then we'll be in a position where we see first production in the second half of, la- of next year, and then you know, m- cruising into nameplate in late 2023, early 2024. So I like, I like the story there. There's no guarantees with Adriatic, but if they execute to plan, they're in a position to go well into 2024 without, without issuing uh, equity. So I, I like that aspect. Um, I mean, the, the ore body is just phenomenal. Um, it's incredibly high grade. Um, folks should go back and look at the feasibility study. I mean, we're talking about a NPV that's many multiples of the initial capex. We're talking about an IRR, you know, north of 100% after tax. We're talking about a, a couple year payback. Um, you know, if, if there's any concerns, uh, it would be tonnage. The tonnage drops off a little bit after year six or seven um, for, for Adriatic and the feasibility mine plan. That's why the drill results that we're seeing at Rapitza, Rapitza Northwest are, are particularly exciting. Uh, I think we should get another update there from the from the end of the year. But they're seeing very similar mineralization and what's an extension of the main Rapitza ore body. And so that tonnage is just going to go right into year six, right into year seven, right into year eight, as much as they can find. And it's just going to keep that, that, that money printer going, um, really, hopefully closer to, to year 10. Um, so there's a positive there. I'll also just say quickly in, in a perverse way, um, you know, g- given the tragedy of what we're seeing in, in, in Ukraine currently, um, from a Western perspective uh, and from a from a Adriatic perspective, this could be this could mean a further Western involvement within Bosnia. Um, I think the Western countries in general are as a result of what's going on in the Ukraine. Um, paying much more attention to to the Baltic re- uh, region, and in in a um, somewhat backwards way, uh, might see a lot more emphasis into to bringing Western value, Western investment into Bosnia. So I think that could actually be a, a tailwind at the back of Adriatic. We're at the beginning of the war. Obviously, there was a lot of fear um, from shareholders and those following the stories story about what the implications of the war could be for the company. You mentioned cash. Um, what percentage cash are you in your fund right now? Yeah, so we're at the, we're in the low teens. Um, throughout most of the fund's history, we've been almost entirely deployed. So this is this is uh, relatively elevated. Um, we should see, be seeing some inflows in the next sixty days. So I'd like to see that number closer to twenty percent uh, by the by the end of the year. Um, but it should be noted we're a long only um, investment partnership, and that's always been the case. So cash is really our only hedge, and it's important to note that even if you're at twenty percent cash, which 
can be difficult to carry. I mean, uh, I, I know for myself personally, a lot of investors, they want to be fully invested. It's hard to sit on that cash. It's hard to be patient, but it's, it's important. Um, but even with 20% cash, you know, you're only cushioning your downside by this, this extra 20%. So, you know, I'm still bracing for, for pain ahead over the next six, six to 12 months. But the game plan here is to deploy this cash largely in a, in a linear fashion, bit by bit, really through early 2024. So again, it's subject to change, but the way I envision it, markets stay choppy, general markets stay choppy um, through the end of next year at the very least. That has a, a direct impact on our sector because these are risk on equities at the at the end of the day. And just as, as time drags on, we deploy at a rate to where we're fully deployed um, kind of in the first quarter or second quarter of 2024. So you can't even go long one of the, let's say, bearish, triple leveraged ETFs to kind of create a hedge within the fund. It's it's cash or deployed for you. Yeah, uh, no, that's that's been my that's been my style. Um, and look, I, I do have I do have leeway to to kind of deviate. Um, but you know, I look at the <laughs> look at the Warren Buffets of the world. I mean, there are, there are investors out there that have you know, made absolute killings over, over long, long careers that have never gone short the market and never held hedges, anything other than cash. So that's, that's my style. Um, you know, if I, if I wanted to deviate, um, I'm sure my partners would, would give me some, some leeway. Um, but that's just not the, not the game that I, that I play. What about a co- commodity breakdown percentage wise? How are you deployed amongst copper, uranium, gold, silver, and such? Right. So, as, as alluded to earlier in this in this interview, this is largely um, a, a repercussion of, of specific investments that have jumped out to me. So I wouldn't view this as some you know view on on which metals I favor over others per se. Um, that's how the rough breakdown is around twenty percent weighted towards gold, fifteen um, percent, and that's towards- down from fifty percent, if I recall, because I remember doing an interview with you where you were at fifty percent, were you? Yeah. So in late twenty twenty. Um, kind of right after that major precious metals run up, um, you know, from the March 2020 COVID lows through late 2020, um, we were up to 50% precious metals. So that that would include silver as well. So maybe it was 35, 40% gold, 10 to 15% silver. I then made a decision at that point to hold off on any additional gold and silver investments, which in hindsight uh, was a good decision. I mean, you know, you know, just as well as I do, it's been a very painful two years in precious metals, an extremely painful two years. What makes it even more painful is most of the rest of the uh, the metals complex has run up. And uh, as recently as March of this year, uh, you know, nickel and copper and uranium were rocking and rolling. <laughs> Lithium continues to rock and roll, and maybe we can touch on touch on that in, in a second. Um, but you're, you're right, we're, our precious metal exposure is down a little bit, but 20% uh, gold, 10% silver, 10% PGM. So we're, you know, we're at about 40, we're at about 40%. If you want to lump PGMs into those into that precious metals category. Most folks do. I think of them more as industrial metals, but I'll let your let your audience decide there. Um, in terms of non-PMs, copper is at about a 20% weighting. Um, we have ag minerals, uh, 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 phosphate and potash at around 5% each, so 10% total. And for did you get minerals. into those before the run-up the last couple of years? Yes. Um, yes. Our like Ariana Phosphate is that one of the companies, or so I'm I'm, I'm following Ariane. Um, it's not it's not a holding of ours. Um, uh, our 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 position in 
Uh, phosphate is in a, a little-known company called Fox River. Um, I, the phosphate space is interesting. I mean, there's only about six, maybe 12 juniors out there spread across um, North America and, and Australia. So there, there's very limited, at least as it stands, uh, investment vehicles. And there's also this nascent uh, battery metal narrative. We'll see how long it takes to, to actually gain traction here, but uh, lithium-ion phosphate batteries uh, or LFP cathodes are gaining increasing market share over nickel-rich cathodes, uh, the, the the typical NMC. And I, I think that's that's a narrative that folks are just catching catching on to. But it's an interesting dynamic with an already tight phosphate market, you know, essential for for inorganic fertilizer. So then also have this new demand. Um, uh, source starting to eat into overall market share. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll see. Uh, Fox River is highly speculative, um, but they're they're a company with the existing Martison uh, phosphate deposit in Ontario. Um, it's seen close to fifty million in expenditures. You have a company that's trading at you know uh, twenty cents on the dollar in terms of historical expenditures. Um, a massive discount to NPV. Um, they came out with a P, uh, updated PEA just earlier this year, so investors can, can check that out. And also a massive discount to the valuation that they reached during the last ag mineral cycle. Uh, Fox River, you know, ran all the way up to close to a four hundred million dollar uh, Canadian market cap. It was very very close to actually being built during the last cycle. Um, things did not go to plan, and now the company's trading closer to a ten or fifteen million dollar market cap. So that one's that one's quite speculative. Um, that is our phosphate. Experience. Exposure, and then our potash exposure comes from a more traditional name. I, I consider Altius Minerals a, po- uh, a potash focused play. At the end of the day, it's very diversified, and I think that should be said. But if you had to classify it one way or another, I think roughly forty to fifty percent of, of Altius's NAV stems from their their potash royalties in, in Saskatchewan. So that's how I think about that with with the ag minerals. Um, and then just going back to your question, nickel at about 5%, vanadium at about 5%, and then uh, a carbon credit royalty um, story called Star Star Royalties, which I wrote about in the last MJG Investor Letter. That's at about you know 5, 5% plus of the portfolio. And I've, I've interviewed Kevin McLean and uh, Brian Dalton was on the show um, recently as well. So you're betting on management when you invest in companies like a Star Royalty or an Altius. For you, would you say it's more of a bet on management and the intellectual uh, property that's inherent there? Yes. Yeah. I, I have I have a ton of respect for for Brian Dalton uh, at, at Altius. Um, I mean, one other one other aspect that I like about Altius that kind of differentiates itself from most of the rest of the royalty names is that they have the uh, ability to organically generate royalties. And there are really only a handful of royalty companies that can do that. Obviously, Altius Minerals comes to mind. um, EMX Royalty comes to mind. um, Elemental Altus, the the newly combined company between Altus Strategies and Elemental Royalties, um, has a full in-house geological team that's out there generating royalties on a daily basis. And then Origin, uh, and I think those are, are really the five out of the dozens of royalties uh, companies out there that are clamoring for attention. Um, if anything, I think the ability to organically generate royalties has been held against some of these companies, uh, especially a, a group like EMX, who has been criticized for having higher GNA uh, expenditures relative to some of its peers. There's a reason for that. If you're out there in the field employing 
you know, half a dozen geologists and incurring the legal costs of operating in different jurisdictions, staking new projects, getting licenses for them, divvying up royalties. Like that, that takes a lot of work. So as of now, it's been held against these groups, but I think that's a key, a key differentiator. Um, and I, I wouldn't be surprised to see some of the larger royalty companies, you know, the real big boys taking a look at these select few names that have organic royalty generation capacity and maybe adding them adding them to the mix because i think that's a way to keep keep a company busy and creating value even if it's not a good deal environment so it can help keep a team disciplined otherwise as a, as a proper royalty company you can find yourself sitting on your hands for a number of years and that's also something that altius does well mind you so you know it can go if brian doesn't think it's the right market environment he can go many years without making any additional acquisitions other than the stuff that they're doing internally to drum up new deals um so that's on the Altius front. Star, different story. They don't have the ability to organically generate mineral royalties, but I'm in Star for, for the carbon credit angle. Um, Star has a uh, privately owned um, uh, a private subsidiary called Green Star, which they own roughly 60% of. Um, very important to note that Agnico Eagle uh, owns uh, 30% of that, of that entity. So it's backed by a $20 billion um, minor. I think that's a huge stamp of, uh, stamp of validation there. Um, I trust the star guys. They're, they're honest people. They're the best incentivized of the royalty of the, um, carbon credit royalty names by far. Um, their, their average cost basis really across the, the board is almost identical to the current market cap where you have many of these private, <clears throat> um, royalty codes, um, carbon credit royalty codes where management are already many multiples of, above their, their, uh, their cost basis, um, at least in terms of the private valuation. So I like the people, I like the incentivization. Um, I like the backing by Agnico Eagle. It's also worth noting that they're one of the first movers as well. Um, you know, is either them carbon streaming were really the first two groups to, to get going in the space, you know, but back in, back in 20, 2018, 2019 timeframe. So that combination of factors, um, you know, we're, we're a long-term holder of star. I want to give management rope here three, four or five years, um, to see what they can do. Um, I don't, I don't think anything's going to happen quickly in the carbon royalty space. Um, I think this is an extremely speculative segment of the market, <laughs> even more sp speculative than copper or focus, uh, you know, gold focused juniors. Um, so it's, it's unlikely that we'll see a major recovery amongst these carbon credit focused names until we see the broader market truly bottom. Um, that said, I do think there's light at the end of the tunnel and credible sources are saying that, you know, car uh, voluntary carbon um, credit demand is set to grow from 0.1 gigatons uh, as it was in 2020, all the way up to one or 1.5 gigatons by by 2030. So we're looking at the potential for 10 to 15x uh, growth in the, in this market, and we're seeing a lot of fo uh, smart folks uh, get involved. You mentioned Brian Dalton. Uh, Altius has made a couple uh, early stage carbon credit investments. You talked about the star team. These are really credible folks moving over from the mining side of things. Um, we've recently seen Christian uh, Milau has, has left Equinox Gold and he's starting a, a carbon credit company called Blue Dot. So I think we're seeing some, some, some pretty smart folks um, seeing the opportunity here and, and moving into the space. So it's, it's going to be really exciting to watch, but star is our horse for this, for this race. With the ESG movement and the demands and expectations that they're putting upon miners and even funds, people like yourself who run funds, that they expect you to invest ethically according to how they define what ethics are, 
How has that influenced you, Matt? Because I've also had private conversations where people are like, this is getting ridiculous. I, I, I need to focus on return on investment. And they're wanting me to focus on what they consider to be good. I'm not running a nonprofit here. I'm running a for-profit fund. So I got to balance the expectations that they're putting on me with producing actual financial return for my investors. Can you share how it's affected you, please? Yeah, I, I wouldn't say, and maybe this is not not the politically correct answer, but this trend hasn't affected my investment strategy all too much. I mean, as we as we've discussed um, throughout this call, my emphasis has always been laser focused on the G, uh, the, the the governance angle, uh, the the people involved, how they're incentivized, how they're dividing up responsibilities, the the, the different controls in place, all that good stuff. And I, I feel strongly that the E and the S stem. From having honest, experienced, well incentivized people uh, behind the helm, um, you know, I will say there are some cases where you you do have that combination, and they're focused on a particularly controversial project. Um, you know, look, look, I just try to stay away from <laughs> from particularly controversial projects. If there's a local population nearby where the majority or vast majority of people are against the actual mining activity. Um, from a moral perspective, I don't feel great investing in that. And also from a financial perspective, you know, I think lo uh, local folks and indigenous um, uh, folks living nearby projects have more power than they've ever had to stop a mining project in the, in the era of, of social media. And I think that's probably a good thing. But whether you think that's a good thing or a bad thing, it's just, it's just the reality. So, um, look, I, I think um, if there's one thing that gets me excited about this ESG craze, or I guess it could work in our favor as investors, is the fact that really over the past 10 years, the ESG space as a whole has largely ignored or turned their back to mining entirely. And that's largely just been due to performance. Um, but I think as we see this mineral cycle progress throughout the course of this coming decade, um, we'll start to see folks, uh, we'll start to see ESGs Funds coming in heavy into the mining space, you know, particularly on the battery metals or energy-focused uh, stories, and so I think that could actually be a pretty decent tailwind for for us um, over the coming years. Of course, this this won't happen overnight, but at the end of the day, these ESG um, funds do want to make money, and I think you can pretty easily craft a narrative. It's not even a narrative; it's the truth. None of these um, technologies that are viewed as you know highly important for the world by ESG focused investors would be remotely possible without these metals pulled out of the ground you know whether it's the uranium going into our baseload nuclear reactors with no CO2 emissions whether it's the silver going into our solar panels whether it's the uh, rare earth metals going into the magnets in our wind turbines <laughs> whether it's the copper taking all this electricity from point A to point B like all this is essential um, and I think all this can be justified very much within within an ESG framework. So, I guess if there's bad news for anybody, it would maybe be for the more for gold focused companies. Like I, I think it's going to be harder to get an ESG firm involved on a, on a pure gold producer. But if you're a well run copper producer, because they don't see the utility in it, is that why in the cyanide and everything associated with it? I think so. Yeah, I, th I think it's largely from a utility perspective. I mean, as it stands. You know, less than ten percent of gold is going into what I would consider modern day applications. You know, ninety percent is either going into jewelry, uh, you know, gold bars or or coins. Um, gold actually is an extremely useful industrial metal, and that's why you know there's still that ten percent of demand. If the gold price was 
one twentieth of the price it is today, then we'd probably be at fifty or sixty percent of of gold uh, demand going to industrial applications. But just such an expensive metal that very little of it that's actually produced is going towards what you know ESG focused investors would deem productive from my perspective. So I think that could be that could be a bit of a headwind for gold, but. Most of the other metals on the spectrum, you know, even zinc, you can you can make an argument is is important for for values and projects that that ESG investors hold hold dear. So I, th- I think this could be a potential tailwind and maybe a blessing in disguise that the mining, uh, at least for investors, that the, that the mining space has been largely ignored by these ESG funds. Last question before you go: uh, What is a key thing you learned last year? It's been a difficult year for any resource investor. Can you share with us something you you have learned? Sure. Um, I did mention lithium earlier on in this uh, in this podcast, and did you think the run was over a couple of years ago, and then it ran again? <laughs> I did. Yeah, yes, I know a lot of we, people like that. <laughs> we largely missed the lithium narrative, and you're speaking mm-hmm. to somebody that made a 10x in lithium Americas between 2012 and 2016. But the narrative just became too obvious to me. Um, there was so much hype. There were, you know, there's 200 plus juniors out there that are claiming that they're lithium focused. And lithium's too abundant, another. right? That's another something I was told, right? It's too abundant. There's too many. Right. There, there's that angle. There's the fact that if there is a bottleneck, it's probably on the processing front um, and not on the actual mining front. There's the fact that there's a real oligarch, oligopoly going on between the SQMs and the Arbomarls of, of the world. So there, there's a lot of things that made me less inclined to, to look at lithium. We have plenty of other battery metal exposure, um, you know, between, between nickel and, and vanadium. And, and uh, we have some, you know, indirect graphite exposure through one of our investments. So I figured we'd, we'd catch, catch most of, of any move in lithium flush, but that's not been the case. I mean, lithium has just been on an absolute tear. So the lesson is never, never underestimate the power of retail involvement and a brain dead narrative. And I'm just I'm just amazed um, that the lithium rush continues uh, to this day. Um, I don't think it actually. I think it cracks um, sooner rather than later. I think if we, when we do see some of these high flying lithium juniors down 40, 50, 60 percent from the levels they're at currently, that will actually be um, you know a back of the envelope barometer of where we are in this downturn. And I think that means that we're closer to juniors bottoming than we we are to the start of this downturn. But we've we've yet to see lithium crack, which gives me gives me a little bit of of concern there because there's just there's so much hype. There's so many juniors out there clamoring for investors' attention. Um, but hey, you know maybe maybe I sound like sour grapes. It's uh, I'm glad folks are making money. Maybe it will cycle in elsewhere into the uh, uh, the the metals market. But this this move has just been crazy to me. And aside from some very little uh, or some indirect exposure to lithium through Kenerland Minerals and Altius Minerals um, has a has a good um, uh, equity stake in a in a private lithium focused royalty company called LRC. Um, but again, for neither Kenerlin nor Altius is lithium really the the driving um, value creator within within the company. So absent those two, we have not participated in this lithium move at all. Um, but kudos to those that have, and I would encourage folks that are invested in in lithium um, to take some profits, <laughs> look elsewhere in the metals complex, um, maybe hold some cash, um, understand that they can be very right about this narrative for lithium over the next six, five, six, 10 years. 
um, but at the same point time, see prices of these juniors down 50%. Like the narrative is real, but that doesn't mean that things are going to continue to go up <laughs> unabated as they have over the past couple of years. Excellent. Well, Matt, thank you for sharing your insights today. I always learn something from you every time we chat. Your website is mjgcapital.com. And I will also link to Matt's Twitter in the show notes below. Thank you again for coming on the show today. Appreciate it, Bill. That was fun. I look forward to doing this soon. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10-for-1 returns as there is in small-cap and micro-cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well, or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident and just do your work as best you can. Do your very best, but don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents, but it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on miningstockeducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.